Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Athletes die twice. That's the hoary, comforting, horrifying mantra that circulates among us ex-jocks. And its meaning should be obvious enough. The muscle and speed, the stamina and quickness you spend your best years building up, the discipline and the single-minded drive, all are bound together by the sport. Are you? And as soon as the sport leaves your life, that which united you is gone. And so you are gone too unraveled like a scarecrow stripped of its stitching. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Corey Sobel, author of The Red Shirt, a book that touches upon themes of identity, football as a path to college, money and the culture of college sports, toxic masculinity, homosexuality and its acceptance, and a host of other subjects. The author describes a teenager who, after being thwarted in his attempt to be honest about his sexuality, hides his true self and focuses on becoming a respected high school linebacker. His success leads to a full college football scholarship at one of the best schools in the country. But his success on the field doesn't lead to the happiness he dreamed about. Hi, Corey. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Galit. I'm really excited to be here. So how did you come to write this really interesting novel? Uh, you know, I played college football um, and I left it uh, under not ideal circumstances. And so you had sort of a, a scenario where um, I had left uh, something that had meant a lot to me and that people in the best of circumstances are going to sort of uh, struggle to come to terms with when they're uh, done with it. And then I had on top of that, just sort of uh, this falling out with the game that sort of made uh, that compounded everything and made it all the more fraught. And so it had stuck with me um, for years and years. And I uh, had written uh, other apprentice novels and other fiction um, about completely unrelated subjects, but uh, my mind just kept returning to the world of college football um, and uh, the fact that nothing that I had read had explored it, um, certainly not in a literary fiction sense. Um, and so eventually I just sort of needed to write it like, you know, any writer needs to get out whatever is in them. Um, and the book, you know, manifested eventually. Well, it's my first literary football novel. Were you as, um, Stellar, a linebacker. Were you a linebacker, and were you as great a player as Miles? Uh, I was a linebacker. Um, I, you're 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 appealing to my sort of uh, vestigial competitiveness as an athlete um, right now because I would say that I was actually better than Miles was. Um, I, I wasn't as good as Rashawn, um, so I kind of fell between them. Um, but whereas Miles has a single, you know, skin of his teeth 
scholarship offer, um, I had uh, many more options than he did. Okay. What about where it's set, uh, where he's from? Silito, Colorado. Is that somewhere in Jefferson County? What's, what it's, what's it based on? That's a wonderful guess. Um, it doesn't exist, but um, I was uh, born in Golden, Colorado, which is in Jefferson County. Um, and so it's definitely my, my mind was in Jefferson County when I was uh, situating the, the opening section of the novel. Um, but I wanted the flexibility of a, a fictional place. Um, and so um, Alan Silito is a great uh, British writer from the mid 20th century um, who wrote uh, an incredible book called The, the Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Um, and it's about a uh, long distance runner at a essentially like a prison school in Britain who uh, rebels against the higher ups. And so um, I thought I would sort of honor uh, the spirit of Silito's book by, by naming this town after him. Mm. Miles, your character Miles, knows he has a soft soprano voice and, and because the other children mock him. Mm -hmm. So then he stops talking and the teacher thinks something's wrong with him. How is a child supposed to handle that kind of a situation? I don't know if there's a supposed to on the kid's end. I think it's much more the prerogative of the, the teacher to uh, see that Miles is alienated and that um, kids are alienating him. And uh, in this case, she um, should be able to read that situation and find a way to um, make him feel accepted and make uh, his him feel comfortable with his voice. Um, but certainly in the kind of town that he grew up in and certainly during the era when he was living in that town, you wouldn't have um, a great chance of having a, a teacher who had that kind of sensitivity. And so instead, uh, Ms. Munson uh, goes in a different direction. So Miles realizes that he's different than other boys. And the story takes place, what, 15 or so years ago. So it's confusing why he doesn't have any adults to help him. I want to talk about the social pressures and that enforce masculine identity in school. Yeah, um, you know, they the, those pressures come to bear um, in different parts of the country, in different parts of the world. Um, in a place like Colorado, and especially at this part of Colorado, uh, a you know, you could even call it an enforcement mechanism for masculinity is football. Um, and so uh, for someone like Miles, uh, you're given maybe, you know, three choices. You can either uh, go fully against the culture, which is going to bring um, all sorts of stigma and heartache. Um, you can go with it, which in his case is going to allow him to, you know, um, on the surface be a part of it. But that obviously is going to put him in conflict with himself. Um, and then the third way, I guess you just kind of muddle along and sort of bounce between the two. Um, but Miles uh, being a uh, an only child and also having, you know, this athletic gift uh, goes hard in, in the side of trying to uh, homogenize himself. Mm -hmm. He's he's very observant. He's constantly mentioning what people are wearing. He sees a lot, but he's also extremely anxious. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I, you know, for me, I think those things can go hand in hand. You know, you can have, uh, 
crippling anxiety that shorts out uh, your powers of observation. Um, but if you're lucky enough, uh, and I think Miles is, um, the anxiety sort of hones your ability to, to understand or at least to watch and try to understand the world around you. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a survival mechanism because he has to monitor himself and he has to monitor people's reactions to him. Um, he's curious um, and the, the ways in which he, in a non-bigoted situation, might uh, explore that curiosity um, aren't open to him. And so I think that sort of, you know, it's kind of like uh, if a um, person who has trouble hearing or, you know, seeing or something like that might compensate with other senses. Um, you might see Miles in, the, in that way, you know, he might not uh, be able to um, be as forthright and active in the world as he might want to be. But uh, the flip side is, is that he's very, very um, interested and invested in seeing how other people act. As I told you before we started, Corey, I'm just so, I really have had no exposure to that entire world, having never attended a football game in my entire life. But, um, but it was fascinating. Miles gets a full scholarship, football scholarship to college, and we quickly become aware of a kind of hyper-masculine football culture that is so um, overwhelming. And I want to know, did you, you went through, you experienced that. How did that affect you? How did, how did football shape the person you became? Oh man. Um, it, you know, uh, like miles, you know, I was, I was raised in this culture. Um, I was raised in the Catholic church. Uh, you know, my dad was Jewish. My mom was from the Midwest. You know, I had all these different uh, cultural signifiers and sort of, um, uh, cultural shapers that I was a part of, but really the biggest one was football. Um, mm. and so it, it's hard to know immediately how to respond to this question because that'd be kind of like asking like, you know, how did your hair come to be Brown or, um, <laughs> any number of things. Um, I, you know, I've had time to reflect on it over, over, over the years. Um, and especially since I left the game. Um, but it was, you know, it, it, it's, it's both the biggest shaper, um, in sort of a sledgehammer sense, but it also, you know, very finely etches your personality. Um, and I, uh, you know, uh, I, yeah, I, I'd have to sort of, I, this is a question I could never completely satisfactorily answer, but what comes to mind now is. I, uh, I grew up in a, uh, you know, there, there are five kids in my family. Uh, my mom's one of nine. Um, I, I'm just sort of used to these big, uh, brash, loud, um, sort of teeming environments. Um, and the way that I saw men stand out in those environments was by being, uh, good athletes. Um, and so I definitely picked up on that and I sort of, you know, early on sort of, you know, said, okay, well, if, if I can establish myself that way, then that's a way to, to get noticed. And that's a way to distinguish myself from other people in this group. And then, you know, that's the, the sort of trial 
uh, social setting that you're in, and then that sort of can can extend outward. And so that kept being the case. Um, and so that was the starting point. And then uh, my family moved around a lot when I was a kid. Um, my, my parents would uh, get jobs, lose jobs, find jobs in other states. And so um, another sort of pressure was I would be in a new school and I would need to sort of uh, establish an identity as quickly as possible and uh, a, a path that was open to me and that proved to be much easier than other ones uh, as a boy was to uh, play football. And then when I was good at football, uh, you know, to sort of um, double down on that identity that people uh, were ready to sort of uh, classify me in. Um, and so, you know, and those things just keep mounting. Um, and so if we're talking about masculinity in other senses, like this also shaped um, understandings I had of how you acted uh, in the classroom or how you acted toward women or how you acted toward, um, you know, people in your school who weren't athletes, who weren't good at sports or who weren't interested in sports. Um, and so those things sort of, uh, sort of attach themselves to you like barnacles, you know, and by the time that you get to the point where Miles is in the beginning of the story, you know, he's, he's kind of deformed, um, by all these sort of like masculine attachments. Um, and that was very much the, the, the case for me. But then Miles, this isn't giving anything away because at the very beginning, Miles realizes that he's gay and he has to, um, function in this very masculine world. Yeah. And that's, you know, those are, those are fundamentally at odds, um, in, in a way that it's just, it's not, uh, in American society in a lot of places anymore. Um, and you know, that's not necessarily true for little towns like where miles is from, but I, I don't think, um, or people don't want to think about how, you know, Football in particular is sort of this uh, bastion still of um, homophobia and of these very rigid ideas of masculinity. Um, and so certainly when Miles understands himself, um, he is also understanding um, this fundamental contradiction in himself, which is that he loves and thrives in this culture that rejects um, these very fundamental parts of him. Um, and so that forces him to make a, a choice and he chooses uh, the game uh, for as long as he can. And then there's also the distinction between the college football players, many of whom are on scholarships who would not be able to be in college, right? Mm -hmm. And the others, the Royals, you call them. Mm -hmm. So how... Is, it, is that something real that you experienced? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, you know, that it you can observe those kinds of divisions um, between athletes and the rest, um, you know, early on, like especially, you know, it, when you when you get to high school, you can start seeing them start to con concretize. And then when you get to college where attendance is tied up with your ability to, you know, um, to pay tuition or with, um, you know, what abilities you have intellectually, 
um, then those divisions really, really start to get stark. And so at Duke, um, the there were there were many different kind of like different ways of differentiating between football players and uh, regular students. And I, I use regular, you know, with air quotes, at least here, um, I recognize that that's a ridiculous term. Um, but uh, they would be called Dukies um, at, at Duke. Um, and that was a way of distinguishing them. Um, there, yet yeah, there were just all these little ways that football players, and this is, and this is something that I, that I tried to play around with and, and get across in the novel, but, um, football teams are just treasure troves of linguistic innovations. Like language in a football program is as, sophisticated and as malleable as it is anywhere, maybe even more. Um, and why that is, you know, is it a separate discussion? Um, but this was, you know, it, it's ultimately, it's a way of articulating um, these really unmistakable differences that exist between kids who are on scholarship uh, at a place like King college, or in my case, Duke um, and the, the rest of the kids um, and it's not, and it's, it's mostly that, um, if you're a football player, your time is not your own, your, your schedule is owned by the football player. You are being controlled by the coaches and by your obligations. Um, and as soon as you step on campus, and this was a really, really kind of distressing thing for me to have seen myself when I got to school was, um, the, the classic ideas that people, uh, have of college as um, unreflected as they are of people's realities um, are dramatically not the case for football players. Um, and the very first, I mean, I mean, actually it starts before because as in the novel um, you're on campus a month before any other student is. Um, and it's really eerie. You're, you're there for training camp. There's no one else there. You are, you know, waking up at six in the morning, you are exercising for, you know, six, seven hours a day, you're going to bed at 11, um, you're working and being worked uh, in this environment where there are no other students. So when the students do eventually, you know, show up and, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of blinding how different you, how different their lives are from yours and uh, football players, um, to register class insecurities or, um, you know, racial differences or any number of things like they need ways to articulate that. And so that, that definitely comes out, um, in language and the way that I tried to, uh, sum that up in, in the novels by having the football players call the, the regular students Royals. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about a lot about the buildings, the actual place on this on King College, which bears a striking resemblance to Duke. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's speci- let's hone in on the hay because you talk a lot about the hay. 
Yeah, well, it, you know, uh, you might remember from reading the book, but I, I refer to academic and athletic regions of the college. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is, it's, it's like talking about, you know, sort of this very small country that has uh, different administrative units, you know, um, and football players uh, spend the vast majority of their lives um, in a single building um, and it'll be the football building. Um, they have uh, strength and conditioning that they have to do there every day. If it's during the season, they have practices, they have meetings uh, throughout the year. If they have academic meetings, chances are that the academic advisor will be in that building. Um, if, <laughs> you know, if a player gets too drunk to drive home, they might go and crash on the carpet of this place. I mean, it's it's it really is sort of, Um, a home away from home for players. Um, And so it takes on this sort of outsized significance for, um, for the team and um, kind of takes on its own kind of personality. Um, And uh, I tried to get that across as as well as I could in the book. Let's talk about Chase, Chase McGarren. He seemed obnoxious from day one. Why does Miles develop a crush on him? He, you know, Miles, um, I think you'll you'll see this with a lot of people who uh, experience abuse in one way or another, um, and you know a lot of whom also uh, you know develop uh, coping techniques that you know as poor as they might be. Um, and for him, you know the the person who makes him feel worse. Uh, worst in the world is also someone who he sort of has this almost ineffable need to to stay around and to kind of prove himself to and to he wants to be worthy of chase um and that's definitely uh sort of uh exacerbated by the fact that chase is above him on the the depth chart of the team um and you know miles also mistakes um, that need, um, with other needs that he isn't able to satisfy or even express, um, as, as a gay, as a gay man. And so all of this sort of adds up to him just sort of having this, this overwhelming fixation on this obnoxious, strident, um, outspoken, you know, infinitely more confident than he is boy. Um, and, uh, I, I think, um, it's definitely something that I, you know, would experience myself in, in any number of contexts. Um, and I think, uh, some readers might feel that they have uh, similar experience as well. Mm-hmm. Why is Miles so stunned to hear that Rashawn McCoy, well, he hears him saying that he could have gotten much more than $10,000. Sorry for my ignorance, but don't all of these kinds of schools offer many incentives for players to choose them? Um, no, not necessarily, or not, not at least, you know, you you wouldn't know about it. Um, you know, Miles happens to, to be in a a circumstance where he can overhear, um, the, the, the negotiations over, uh, Rashawn's bribe taking place. Um, so it's, it's, it's not common um in a you know everyone knows about a way it happens all the time and you know uh, division one football is is extremely corrupt in that sense um 
but you first of all, you just wouldn't necessarily hear about it as as Miles does. But more more than that, you know, Miles has invested everything in this culture and in his place in this culture and in this school that at the last minute you know, gave him a chance and no other school did. And so he needs this school and this program and this game to um, embody ideals for him um, and to be a sort of well of righteousness and rectitude. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a, a moment where he's uh, rationalizing away hearing the bribe um, where he talks about, um, you know, did I know that this happened generally? Sure. But I didn't think that it happened at my school. Um, and it, you know, and so I think that um, attention in Miles in that moment in the book generally is that he um, is trying to will away all of the the unseemly, nasty aspects of this culture that he needs so badly. Um, and in that moment, um, he it, it's it's extremely difficult for him to do so. He 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 manages to sort of talk himself into feeling okay about it, but that's that itself is short lived. Um, and that's I think it's a very common. Um, loss of innocence that, you know, people in any, any culture experiences at one way, you know, at one time or another, you know, I was, uh, raised Catholic and there were moments where I realized, you know, the, the church was not the, the, the font of, uh, morality and goodness that I had been raised to believe. Um, you know, you can, a lot of people are having that experience about the country uh, that we live in right now. So um, it's, it's a, it's a sort of microcosm um, for what I think a lot of people his age experience um, in, in one form or another. Mm -hmm. Rashawn is a, a really interesting character. You, you know, I, I went hot and cold in him. I liked him and I didn't like him because he's, he's interesting, but his girlfriend, <laughs> she's fabulous. Oh, great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. You um, need a strong woman. To offset yeah. all of these macho guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. You know, there are not, uh, there are hardly any women in the book. Um, and that was by design, um, not only because, you know, Miles is, is gay and his sort of uh, focus is going to be on, you know, the, the male world that he's running around in. Um, but it also gave me a chance to sort of explore all of the different gradations of masculinity and... Um, you might have noticed in the book that, you know, there are various times when the players are talking, um, they will, when they're using analogies, uh, one of the, the people who they're talking about will be put in the position of the, you know, what they perceive as the female. Um, mm -hmm. And so by and large, the book's very much about, you know, what happens when there aren't any women around. Um, but uh, in Rashawn's case, um, because Rashawn's straight. Um, and because he's also just desperate to get a foothold in the wider university, um, it, it was really eager to, to find um, a girlfriend. And so he, he finds Jamie. Again, not understanding that entire culture. Is there a connection between the players' misogyny and their school patriotism, all that strutting and name calling? Yeah, sure. I think I think those are, you know, those are uh, subconscious sort of 
enforcement mechanisms. Um, they definitely, you know, the, the classic um, thing that people, when they're looking at college at football culture generally um, to try to understand it is they point out how many uh, military uh, metaphors there are. And, you know, you, uh, coaches tell their players they're going to battle. Um, and, you know, you have to fight for every yard that you gain on every down and all of these things. And so, um, you know, the, the school fight song and the sort of, um, boosterism for the school generally is just sort of a, a different kind of enforcement mechanism. And it's a way to, um, to, you know, like, like we were talking about a little bit earlier, you know, if you want to stand out. Um, one way to do it in a school like that um, where the players are going to perceive braininess as more feminine um, and see player, uh, you know, uh, students who aren't athletes as uh, just by the simple fact of not being athletes like themselves as sort of um, in a more feminine cast. And this is from their perspective, then a way for them to stand out and to feel special um, and to, you know, feel like they have a place is to assert this, these very sort of chunky, obvious, you know, ways of being masculine. Um, and so those things, they sort of all cycle into each other and reinforce one another. Mm-hmm. Nicknames play a big role. What's up with that? Oh, that's, I mean, that actually, that is also, you know, what, what we're talking about now. So, you know, nicknames are, um, they can be a way of expressing intimacy, um, but they're also a way of diminishing people. Um, they're a way of essentially you're 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 unnaming someone and saying I'm gonna give you this name instead. And by doing that, you know, naming can be a, a form of ownership, um, and that gets literalized in the book. You know, with the the slave that uh, who, who Rashawn studies. Um, but uh, there's just this intensely complicated dynamic behind names. Um, you know, coaches, by and large, call their players only by their last names. Um, so the coaches, in that way, exercise a kind of control over players. And the players turn around and want to exercise uh, uh, control over other players. And so one way of doing that is by referring to them by whatever, uh, you know, place they have on the depth chart. So are you a one, which is first string? Are you a two, second string? Are you a bottom feeder, which is essentially third string? Um, or is there a an emasculating nickname that you can give someone? Um, and that plays, you know, a big, a big role in the book. Um, and so it's like in a lot of other ways, like naming in football, um, even e- actually when it's uh, affectionate, like is a form of control and attempted domination. Sounds lovely. Um, <laughs> let's, t- let's discuss the football coaches and their demands on the team. Yeah, I, they, uh, they, they are in control of, and in some senses own these kids lives. Um, and that's, that's a basic fact of football at this level. Um, these coaches are the ones who uh, deem players worthy of getting scholarships in the first place, which for a lot of football players is the difference between going to college and not. 
Um, certainly between going to, you know, a, a, a college that's going to give them more opportunities afterward and not. Um, and then when they get to school, um, there are these sort of concatenations of control that coaches exercise. So you have the head coach who's in control of the entire team. Then you have the offensive defensive coordinators who are in charge of their respective units. And then you have the position coaches who are in charge of their specific uh, position groups. And so um, you have a single player who any given player is nested, you know, within three or four levels of coaches, you know, at least. Um, and then these coaches are going to give them their schedules. They're going to say what classes they can take and when um, they tell them when they can wake up. They say when they can eat, um, you know, what they can eat. Um, you know, and it just sort of goes from there. And so the, the coaches are the sort of alpha and omega for these players. Um, and that sort of puts them in a similar circumstance that, uh, Miles has with Chase, where you have people who are being controlled by these men. And it's almost kind of like a Stockholm syndrome situation where, you know, you eventually fall in love or convince yourself that you're in love with these people who um, oftentimes are demeaning you, um, controlling you in any number of ways. And um, that all goes back to the fact that they're in control of your scholarship and they'll determine whether or not you can keep going to college. Um, and uh, more broadly, they're in charge of your health, your, your bodily health, your psychological health. Um, and there's no, there's no reciprocity there, you know, that you have 85 scholarship players on the division one team. Um, and so any one player, you know, unless you're the, the most important one, like Rashawn, you're disposable and the coaches remind you of that fact explicitly or implicitly all the time. Um, and that just deepens the sort of asymmetrical, um, power dynamic that exists between players and coaches. Mm-hmm. So Corey, your book is being released in what, during a time that's supposed to be football season. And because of the pandemic, it's 2020, um, that's been canceled. Also the world of college sports is on hold during the pandemic. So what's your take on this for your book? And what about all those kids who depend on sports scholarships? What's gonna happen to football? It's, yeah, it's a mess. Um, you know, I mean, as of, as of today, um, you know, uh, football is the, you know, just the, the lifeblood of a lot of schools. Um, it is, uh, how schools fund, uh, their less lucrative, uh, athletic teams. It's, um, how a lot of schools, especially state schools, um, you know, endow scholarships or, you know, make other parts of the university run. Um, so for football to be compromised the way that it is by COVID is sort of, it's, it's leading to this reckoning um, in the, the college world that um, if you were to talk, if you talk to any, you know, professor, any graduate student, they'll tell you what an unhealthy relationship uh, football has to the university. Um, but, you know, no one was expecting for 
those that unhealthy dynamic to be uh, sort of put forward so starkly and for people to have to sort of confront, um, you know, what happens when football isn't going on. Um, so for, for my book, um, and that, you know, in a, in a selfish sort of sense, I don't, I actually think it, uh, is to its benefit. I think, uh, I I'm hoping that readers will be intrigued to sort of observe just how catastrophic, the disappearance of college football is for universities and they might look, you know, to books like mine to sort of understand why that dynamic exists and how it persists. Um, but like in a broader sense, uh, I don't think football is going anywhere. You know, uh, I, I, it's, it's too important. Um, it's too ingrained uh, culturally and otherwise in these schools um, for it to change fundamentally once the, the pandemic ends. Um, but what we have right now is this sort of fascinating thought experiment come to life where um, we're seeing just how um, a, a really fundamental pillar of the American university system um, is getting yanked out. Um, and, you know, we're seeing these institutions kind of totter, um, as a result. Um, so I, yeah, it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's, it's weird to have been talking about something like this, to have written a book that like really does, uh, muse on a lot of these issues. And then to see it happen as dramatically as it is, it's just really surreal. You mean you had something to do with causing COVID-19? Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. I'm not. Just, I, just asking. <laughs> yeah, let's. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't want to give uh, conspiracy theorists okay. any any more uh, than they already have. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it, you know it's it's a total coincidence. Um, but I think what's what's both good and also sad about my book is you know this the the story takes place in the early aughts. You know, this is takes place uh, fifteen or more years ago, and um, the experiences that I had that informed it. And the basic realities of football generally have not changed. If anything, they've, they've gotten worse. And so it's, it's unfortunately uh, timeless in, in that respect. Wow. Um, I, again, was very surprised to enjoy a book about football, a That's literary great. novel about football. <laughs> so it's a first. Um, I don't know if anybody else has written one, but kudos to you for, for nailing it. Thank it's you very really much. A, a wonderful, wonderful book that I feel like I need, I know everything I need to know about football <laughs> now. So <laughs> thanks so much for that. So what are you working on next? Uh, I am uh, putting the finishing touches on a new novel um, that is set entirely in Colorado um, and uh, focuses on um, three childhood friends um who get close during uh, one summer and then it follows them um, over uh, subsequent summers um, and sort of watches their friendship um, come under extreme strain because of uh, poverty, because of um, discrimination, because of uh, any number of things. And so it sort of uh, measures uh, friendship and childhood and sort of looks at how that um, impacts us as adults. I'm interested. Keep me posted. 
Excellent. Hey, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Lee. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Corey Sobel, author of The Red Shirt. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Book Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle's an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join.